All right, our scripture reading this morning comes from Psalm 85. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all their wrath, all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The word of God for the people of God. Please open in your Bibles to Psalm 85. Grab your phone if you need that. Thank you, Andrew, for your reading. And Jeff, thank you for your prayer. That helped focus and center me on what we need to really talk about this morning. Um, So we are switching from Proverbs to the Psalms and uh, using the Psalms as our Advent series, which might be a little bit strange to some of you all. But um, one, the Psalms are part of the wisdom literature. They help equip us with the skill of living well. Uh, But also the Psalms... Um, are uh, some of them are messianic psalms. Some of them are cries for an, a second advent or, or first advent and then restoration for God's people. Um, and so uh, this psalm here is an anticipatory psalm. It's a psalm of lament. As we talked about, a third of all the psalms are what is known as lament. Many of us have probably heard that term before, but it's very vital to um, the practice of being a Christian, learning what it is to lament. So the other two-thirds of the psalms are psalms of praise. Many of us know what it is to praise God, to thank God, to ask God for things. Um, But one lost art, for lack of a better term, in our Christian life is what it means to actually lament, which is equally as important. So that's what we're going to talk about uh, this morning. I love that Jeff kind of started off by praying you know, about losing our peace, about the things that take our peace away, and then how we as Christians are to react to that. It's important that we understand that if we're coming into this room this morning with our peace having been hijacked by either our own sin or by something, an outside force, God cares about that. There's an appropriate response for you within Christendom, within God's kingdom, for you to deal with a world that steals peace from you. And that's what we're going to talk about, how to, how to deal with that. So let me pray and we'll get started. Lord, I do thank you that you call yourself the great physician. I thank you that you don't need a scalpel. Uh, you simply have your word at your disposal to do surgery on our hearts. We pray, Lord, as we come before you with our wounds and with our struggles and our infirmities, 
that you would be gentle with us. Lord, but that you would work in such a way that there is great transformation, great turning and repentance, true confession, that we might experience a peace which surpasses all understanding. Just pray right now for myself, for your spirit to give me focus, calm, and insight into these wonderful truths that we have before us this morning for all of our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, back towards uh, the beginning of the year, I have a small group I meet with on Friday mornings. Uh, We've been meeting together for uh, over a decade. It's been a wonderful life source for me. And we study books of the Bible. We also read books together and do discussions. And uh, this, uh, for the past few months, we've been reading a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. I don't know if any of you all have heard of this book, but I highly recommend it. Uh, I read it actually seven or eight years ago, and for some reason I enjoyed it, but it didn't have quite the same effect that it's having on me uh, currently, and maybe that's just because with three children and leading a church, life has just become, uh, prayer has become uh, much more necessary in this season of life, and so I'm kind of eating up every word he has to say about how we are to pray and why prayer exists and what it is, and so I highly recommend the book. But his words have really uh, ministered to me uh, in the past several weeks in um, the vein of this subject matter called lament. Um, as I said earlier, a third of the Psalms are prayers of laments. And here's what laments are, as this is how they are defined. Prayers of pain, confusion, and anger, drawing attention to what's wrong with the world. They ask God to do something about it. They serve as an appropriate response to evil in the world. So here's the thing. The idea of being a Christian is not just to put a happy smile on your face and act like everything's okay all the time, because we believe in God and God's sovereign. He's got everything in control. Certainly, we believe God's sovereign. He has everything in control, but we also have the freedom as God's people to take to him our frustrations and our sadnesses and um, our anger towards a world that does not work as it should. So it's a world that confronts us with frustration from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. Miller points out that many of us are are uncomfortable with the practice of lament. One, because we either don't understand it, or because if we do have some understanding of it, we think of it as complaining at best or disrespectful at worst. He says, actually, though, to love is to lament. To love is to lament. If you don't lament, your heart begins to slowly shut down. Not lamenting leads to cynicism that eventually ends in unbelief. Lamenting shows we're actually engaged with God in vibrant living faith. We live in a broken world, and if we're not lamenting to God about it, then we've either stopped caring or we've given up. Lament is accepting the chaos and brokenness of the world and then taking it to God to fix it. How many of our prayers are filled with that? God invites it, and He promotes it, and He desires it. He doesn't tell you to act like everything's okay and just shut up and be grateful. I would add that we live in this age of cynicism, much like the culture the early Christians live in among the Greeks, who were what were called Stoics. Stoics don't care about the chaos of life. 
They simply accept the chaos of life, and then they learn to live with it with no hope that it will ever change. Yeah, life's not fair. Deal with it. You get frustrated? Yeah, that's life. It's not very sympathetic. Christians lament out of longing for a better world. What we lament, when we lament, we live in the past and the present and the future. We don't act like the, pre- the past doesn't matter. We don't numb ourselves to the present, and we don't disregard the future. We recognize all three. A lament connects God's past promises with our present chaos, hoping for a better future. And as I said, as I said many of us are not comfortable with lamenting because we're afraid it sounds like complaining, and Miller is also helpful in distinguishing the difference between lament and complaint. He says, laments are made to God directly. Complaints are made to others about God. Laments are submissive to God's way. Complaints make demands for our way. Many of our prayers are misguided laments. We're just trying to get God to do what we want Him to do. Laments display faith in God to do something. Complaints show self-pity, denial, cynicism, and self-determination. And Miller makes an interesting point that we're all more accustomed to lament than we might realize, especially parents. He says, children put this into practice before us all the time. When a child says, Dad, you said we'd go to the pool. I want to go today. Why haven't we gone to the pool? Those small laments are actually really helpful examples of how we should lament to our Heavenly Father because the lament of a child connects two necessary parts of a lament, promise and hope. Our children remember the promise we've made and they express their hope, even in frustration, that we will do what we said we would do. That is lament. Lament connects two hot wires, God's promise and the problem. And when those things connect together, sparks fly, Miller says. God's promise and our problem. It's exactly what's happening here in Psalm 85. So Israel has just returned from exile, which was an extremely unpleasant desert season for them, a season of trial. God took them into that desert as His cure for their wandering hearts. The desert is God's best hope for the creation of an authentic people. He may be taking you into a desert. He has all kinds of different deserts planned for your life. And he's going to take you in and out of them, whether it's relational or through your work or through loss. It becomes a window into the heart of God for us as his beloved. It's where God shows up. And it's where lament happens. In both the literal desert that Israel wandered through for those 40 years and the exilic one, they are left like we all are, trying to bridge the gap between hope and reality. And this is where Miller, again, is so helpful. He talks about reality being the baseline and hope being the trajectory. And we try to bridge that in our lives when we see the reality of what our lives are like and the hope of what we want it to be like. We typically try to bridge that with despair or self-determination. And that does not bridge that gap. What bridges that gap is longing after God. You can't fix it yourself. You're helpless. God wants you to come to Him. So we're given this gift of lament to ignite our faith, and that's what's happening in Psalm 85. And there's three key components to lament that happen here that happen in every prayer of lament. They don't happen in the same order. It's actually really ordered quite nicely here for us. But there's some echo of each of these three aspects of lament. A true healthy lament does three things. You plead a case before God first. 
We'll show you what that looks like. You make a confession, and then you make a cry. So a case and a confession and a cry. First, a case. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. Imagine standing before the judge. Okay? You're pleading your case. You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Okay, it's not like God doesn't know those things. He knows what he's done. But he wants to hear it back. He wants to hear that you understand who he is and what he's about. And as you plead your case, you plead the case for who he is first. So you take your pain and you take your frustration, you take your lament, and you say, God, I know who you are. I've taken inventory of who you've been throughout history. I've read your scriptures. I've read how you related to your people. I know how faithful you can be. I know the kind of God I have and the kind of God I worship. That's who I'm coming before today. And so your laments are expectant prayers. God wants you to pray expectantly, that He will actually answer it. So you're saying, God, you're faithful. You answer prayer. You've done it for your people since the beginning of time. You are the promise-keeping God. This is my case. I'm staking my case on that, on these objective truths. He is the object and the source not only of your discouragement, but also of your hope. So in other words, you can bring your discouragement to God and your doubts and your anger and your frustration to Him precisely because of what you've witnessed Him do in the past. A case is always made for the character and the work of God in lament. And so it's, it's you, God, can do something about this evil. The situation in my life is awful, it's agonizing, it's unpleasant, but you can help me. I may have even caused it because of my sin. I find myself here, but I recognize that I can only be delivered from it by your power. That's why it's an act of worship. Lament is an act of worship. It's not an act of complaint. It's not unholy. It's precisely holy. It's why it's part of the wisdom literature. It's what it is to live wisely. This is part of the skill of living well, to learn how to do this. God can be the object of our lament because he's proven that he will always do something about it. His record proves that he can handle his people's lament. He handled it when Abraham lamented about not being able to have a son. He handled it when Moses lamented in Midian. He handled it when Israel lamented in the desert. He handled it when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. He handled it when Job lamented having lost everything. He handled it when David lamented in the mountains while he was on the run from Saul. And so on and so on and so on. Although God puts us through these desert seasons, we can trust, because of his past faithfulness, that they're not meaningless. I've said that up here a lot. Read two quotes this week. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Despair is the opposite of faith. God invites your doubts. Lament is not a failure of faith. It's an act of faith. It's the prayer of the Father who brought his son to Jesus for healing and prayed, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, 
Help my unbelief. That's lament. Those moments of desperation, it's good for us to remember God's faithfulness to his people to always forgive and restore and answer them. That has to be on the forefront of our minds. We have to make that case. The beauty of lament in particular is that it's showing us how even the Israelites understood that in order to be restored to God in right relationship for things in their lives to be ordered and to work, God would have to initiate that change. That's why David cries out in Psalm 51, renew a right spirit within me, O God. It's not self-determination. It's not, hey, I need to get my heart right. It's, God, you renew the right spirit within me. You give me a heart of repentance. I'm not repentant. Give me a heart of repentance. That gives God all the glory and honor and praise. And then it's this confession. You look at verses 4 through 8. It says, and, and this is, yeah, it says verse 4 through 8. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry forever? So when we're in these valleys and we feel like there is no peace, in our flesh and in our default, the thought is God's just angry at me because our faith is superstitious. It's religion, right? It's I did bad, so I'm getting bad. I did good, so I get good. That's not how God operates. That's superstition. Now, because of our sin, are there consequences for things that we do? And is there unpleasantness for us if we stray from the ways of God? Yes. And he will allow us to... You know, I had a friend who, um, when he was little, his mom, he was like six years old. His mom literally, he kept saying, I want to run away. I don't want to live here. And so his mom let him run away. He made it about halfway down the street, tried to climb up a tree and sit there for a little while, and she just stood on the front porch waiting for him. Until he eventually realized he couldn't do it on his own. And that's the way God relates to us as his children. You want to run away? Okay. Let me know how it goes. So they make this, this confession. Will you be angry forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let us not turn back to our folly. Do you hear the confession there? You may not. The confession is, we have committed folly. We have followed after false gods. We have done what is not pleasing in your sight. We have made you angry. We've, made, we've, we've invited your displeasure. But please, relent. Have mercy on us. We don't deserve it, but we need your grace. People have offended God and merited his wrath and disfavor. They've committed folly and been unwise in how they've chosen to live. And the psalmist is confessing that they desperately need God to restore them. And so with lament, we remember, but we also run. We remember and we run to God. We do not confess in order to be forgiven again and again. We practice confession in our service every week. We practice confession in our daily lives precisely because we have been forgiven. Confession is an act of repentance in which we receive continual opportunities to turn from our folly and back to God in faith. And God will honor that confession and withdraw his anger. It doesn't mean he sweeps it under the rug. It means that he will have his wrath satisfied in his own way by his own substitutionary atonement, which is Jesus. 
It was the animals in the Old Testament, which weren't, weren't meant to last. They were meant to exhaust Israel, waiting for that better sacrifice. And he stored up all that wrath, and he withheld that wrath through these prayers of lament to pour it all out on his son. Removing the punishment from you. There is, there, there, is, there is no more punishment for your sin. There is consequence. There is unpleasantness. There are deserts. But there is no more punishment. I'm not sure I can say that up here enough. I think some of us want to be punished. We feel like it might be more pleasant or more effective. He is not going to punish you. He punished his son for you. And because of that, your response should be obedience. It should be praise. It should be rejoicing. And then finally, we see this cry here. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I love that. That's that moment where Jesus comes, where that baby is born, where he's hanging on that cross. And righteousness and peace kiss each other, finally. The longing of all of God's people, that peace would come and they would be restored to peace with God. It came. You can hear the, the anticipation here for Jesus to come, for this Messiah to come, for peace and righteousness to kiss each other. For God himself to bridge that gap. That is why longing is what bridges the gap between reality and hope, not your despair or self-determination or denial of the situation. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. So it's talking about this moment where this baby, this, this human will come up from the ground. He will be raised. He will be born. He will be of the earth. But the righteousness needed for him to execute his job as Savior comes from above. So it is both God it is both, and it is human. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. The faithfulness is the God being, God being faithful to His people where they were unfaithful. He is keeping His covenant promise from long ago. And that faithfulness comes from a human. From one who lived in our place. Whose life is as valuable as His death and His resurrection. It says, yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. He talks about, Lord, speak to us. He does. Jesus is the Word made flesh. God has not turned his back on his people, although he's put them through these different difficult seasons. He's put you through a difficult season. He has not turned his back on you. He is going to be faithful to you. He's going to see it through. So whereas we make a case based on God's past faithfulness, we confess trusting in His present provision, we cry out in future hope. That's what Advent is about. Miller says in his book, Lament is a cry for home, for a new Eden. We've talked about that with the wisdom literature. You know, we have the painting up here that Naft did that's so awesome of, of them leaving that Eden, that going out into this, this now sinful, corrupt world, leaving behind that light, and that tree of life, but that God 
in pursuit of them, this is the story of the Scriptures, in pursuit of them, according to His promise, He will restore them back and graft them into that tree of life and give them the light of the world. That's the story of the Scriptures, of Him doing that, of Him meeting us in that place where we don't even know how to relate to each other, with Eve and her pain, and Adam with his inability to be wise and to know how to comfort. That's what the wisdom literature is for. It's God saying, I care about how you live in this broken world, and there is a way to live that is good and right and satisfying. If you will follow me, this will lead you to the tree of life. Lament is a cry for that home. It's a cry for that restoration back to Eden. It's what our hearts, our hearts' deepest longing is for that, that restoration. And so lament is practicing that over and over again. It's perfect for Advent. You know, we talk, you know, we want to sing the Christmas carols and Christmas time is fun and we have presents and family and it's awesome. But for many of us, it's painful because it's a reminder of brokenness. It's a reminder of unsadness, a reminder of dysfunction, of relational conflict, of not getting what we want, of loss. It is a perfect time to lament. Say, God, you are faithful. I confess the ways I've been unfaithful. Please come and make things right. Restore this. Bring it to an end. I love my favorite prayer, my S.E. praise at night is, Jesus, just come back. She doesn't like her arthritis. She doesn't like when her bones hurt all day long. And she knows, she believes that Jesus can end that. That's lament. a messianic cry. It should be the cry of Advent. I'll close with this. Jesus came, the Holy Spirit led him into his own desert to be tempted with the same question, and Jesus chose to rely on and trust God as his rescuer. And that question was, will you take, ask yourself this, With the trauma and the betrayal and the conflict, the bad diagnosis, something wrong with your work, whatever it is, your marriage, will you take the bread of bitterness offered to you by Satan, as many of us do, or will you take the bread of life given through lament? Jesus went out to the desert to answer that question. He said, I want the bread of life, not the bitter cup. He knows what it is to be desperate and frustrated and hurt by God. This is the only Savior of any religion that says this. I know what it is to be desperate. I know what it is to long. I know what it is to lament. He lamented himself on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus connects the chaos of his circumstance in that moment with the love of God. He connects God's promise to hope. He's not stoic or deterministic in the moment. He's crying out for God. He's fully alive to reality and hope, and he bridges it with his own lament. God's answer to that lament? Resurrection. Jesus' lament brings us peace. Paul writes these words in Ephesians 2. Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, reconciling us to God the Father in one body through the cross. 
Amen? Let's pray.